So, Katie, um, you've put together a virtual issue of interesting papers from the last 20 years or so of functional ecology about mycorrhizas. Um, so I'm just going to ask you a few questions about some of the more interesting questions that occurred to me while I was, while I was reading the virtual issue. Um, and, and some of these questions may not seem very, very bright, you know, but I'm, I'm, sure I'm not an there. expert. I'm not an expert, so bear with me. Um, you mentioned uh, an interesting early paper by uh, Alistair Fitter's group from 1998 and showing transfer of carbon between plants. But I think at that time there was some doubt about whether the carbon was actually getting into the plant because it stayed in the roots. So it, mm. it may have just stayed in the fungi. So what's, what's the current position on that? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Ken, actually. Um, in short, I think the answer is that we're still not 100% sure. <laughs> still, <laughs> after a, all this yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's a constantly changing field, but yeah, I think we're still not sure. Um, not long after that functional ecology paper was published, um, the authors, Alistair Fitter and David Robinson, released their latest findings in Journal of Experimental Botany, again finding a lack of movement of fungal carbon into plant shoots. More recently, work by Pfeffer et al. in 2004 seemed to confirm this, um, but they used an exenic root organ culture system, whereby transformed carrot roots and fungal symbionts were fed labelled sugars, and the movements of those sugars were traced. Um, again, the authors demonstrated that the plant carbon movement is actually unidirectional, so it's just going from plant to fungus. Um, mm -hmm. The problem with all of these studies, in my opinion, um, it's that they don't ever seem to consider plants that are mycoheterotrophic, which is a really long term for plants that, that basically rely on their fungal symbionts for mineral and carbohydrate uptake. So I'm talking, the, you know, the, the classic example are the orchids. Yes. Right. Um, so many other groups of plants have also been shown to rely on mycorrhizal acquired carbohydrates for at least their early nutrition. Um, that includes members of the Burmaniaceae, Ericaceae, um, Thysmiaceae, and there's, there's many other angiosperm species. Several early tracheophyte species as well that have achlorophyllous subterranean gametophytes, including Diophyoglossoid ferns, whisk ferns, and lycophytes, derive their carbohydrates from mycorrhizal fungi. Um, even some liverworts do it, so a neuromirablis, a ghostwort. That actually um, is entirely mycoheterotrophic. Um, whether the chlorophyllous sporophyte generations of these plants, so the green or green shoots and angiosperms, then pay back what they've sponged off the network, it's a very topical area of research at the moment. Um, as Nancy Johnson famously said, I think we should probably view the functioning of mycorrhizal symbiosis more as a continuum running from full-on mutualism where we've got a sort of tit-for-tat repayment system uh -huh. um, through to a parasitism where some plants actually take everything off their fungus. Okay. Um, yeah, and specific examples sort of fit normally fit somewhere yeah. along that continuum. Yeah. So there certainly are plants that are getting their carbon via the yeah, mycorrhizal sure. network, and, and, and they have to be. For sure. Some of them, because yeah. they, they're not making their own. Well, if they don't have any green bits. They don't have any green bits. Yeah, what are they doing? Where is it coming exactly. from? Exactly. But in, but in what you might call ordinary run-of-the-mill plants, it's, it's not so important, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah normally, norm, if you've got green leaves, you're going to be photosynthesizing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Normally. I mean, yeah. There are examples that aren't, yeah. but as okay. with any rule. Right, okay. Um, another thing. Now, um, 
You say, you mention a paper from 2002 by Zabinski et al, right. uh, which shows that mycorrhizas improved access to phosphorus, mm -hmm. and you, 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 that's almost in there as though it's, um, as though it's kind of new, and I thought we, I thought we kind of always knew that. Yeah, 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 no, you're right, you're quite right. So, it's not so much that the finding that the plants themselves are benefiting from the phosphorus uptake that's the novel part. Um, I mean, we've known that for ages, right? I mean, David Reed's radioisotope experiments yeah. that go back to the 70s have yeah. um, sort of shown that unequivocally. Um, no, Zabinski et al. were among the first to actually make the links between this enhanced access to phosphorus pools that were previously unavailable to plants, or are otherwise unavailable, unavailable to plants, rather. Um, they were the first ones to make the links between that and um, the interspecific variation in the effectiveness of plants actually you know, doing that, so whether the plants are good at it or not, which, right. yeah, um, and the potential impacts that that has on community composition and structure. Right. So, for example, if species A is particularly good at using mycorrhizas to get more phosphorus, then that will reduce the available phosphorus in its immediate surroundings. Yeah. Um, and that creates a patch of phosphorus limitation to other plants. Right. Right. Um, further, the enhanced phosphorus nutrition of that plant will then normally lead it to being bigger and stronger and yep. it has improved defenses because of mycorrhizal priming of defense responses. Um, and so it could well be that that plant will become dominant in that area. Right. And so they were the first to draw the links between, or, or among the first at least, to draw the links between. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I think that probably goes some way towards answering another question that mm -hmm. I was going to ask you, which was about um, a paper showing that uh, the effectiveness of phos phosphorus uptake yeah. in plants is, is definitely species specific. Mm -hmm. And so some plants seem more likely to be donors or receivers. Mm. So is this just supply and demand i mean do just do plants that are short of phosphorus just kind of grab right. what's around yeah it's a massive question actually yeah. it's one that's <laughs> driving a lot of mycorrhizal research today um i think it relates to the degree of mycorrhizal colonization like some right. plants have a lot of them some plants don't um and it also depends on how effectively the individual plants are able to utilize their mycorrhizal partners so some plants as we said are really excellent taking mycoheterotrophs again as the example so plants that rely on fungus, you know, they're great at it, so yes. they're going to be getting everything from their fungal partners. Um, other species, though, they ditch mycorrhizas completely and they go it alone, so they don't, they don't have any fungal symbionts in their roots that are doing anything mutualistic. Recent work by um, the Kears group at Freer University in Amsterdam has shown that some species of mycorrhizal fungi are actually better partners than others, and it may be the symbiosis operates on a tit-for-tat basis with plants that are generous in their carbon sharing, being rewarded with more phosphorus in return. And stingy plants, so ones that aren't giving off much carbon to their partners, they don't benefit from as much phosphorus. So that kind of provides a mechanism for the um, evolutionary st stability of the relationship. However, my work has shown actually that there's striking differences in the efficiency of phosphorus for carbon exchange between to plants and fungi, they're, they're mycorrhizal fungi, um, according to the structural complexity of the plant. So the more, the bigger the plant, the more leaves it has, the more complicated its vascular systems, actually the more efficient it becomes at operating a mutualistic relationship. Um, and it's also affected heavily by the um, ambient CO2 concentration. 
um, which suggests things are probably a little bit more complicated than straightforward tit for tat. Okay. Um, it's a, yeah, it's a really fast moving area of research, and it, it, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading more in the future. I think and seeing what else has been yeah, helping that okay. area. So moving on from that again, mm. um, I think that moves us on to another question I had, <laughs> which was which was about how important mycorrhizas are in terms of the sort of the sort of nutrient availability in the soil. I, I was I was kind of brought up to believe that mycorrhizas are more important for plants mm. under nutrient poor conditions. Right. Is that is that is that right? Um it depends on the species again, it depends on the type of mycorrhiza. It's really tempting to lump mycorrhizal fungi in one group and just be like, yeah, they all do the same thing. And they really don't. <laughs> they really like, don't. No, they really don't do the same thing. Um, you know, I just thought I just thought that mycorrhizas more or less you know, more or less evolved. As, as a response yeah, to, to well, low phosphorus ooh. availability, and that, and that if well, it's a bit of a chicken and know, egg question, isn't it? Like, is I, I know, it I know it nutrients is. Nutrients that stimulated yeah. plants to hook up with fungi that could get them, or did the fungi sort of evolve to provide plants with nutrients, get access to an easy yeah. carbohydrate store? It's, it's, it's okay. It's a bit of a grey area. <laughs> I mean, certainly, am I right in thinking that if you give plants, if you give plants loads of phosphorus, like people do in right. agricultural situations, yeah, okay. they tend to ditch the mycorrhizas. Yeah, and a lot of the problem with um, sort of modern crop varieties that have been bred have been bred under these high nutrient regimes, and so a lot of them have actually lost their mycorrhization gene or not genes, but they've lost their um, ah, okay. capabilities to form functional mycorrhizas. It's quite, it's, ah. it's interesting. Again, I think it's quite a new Oh, concept okay. trying to use mycorrhizae in agricultural settings for sustainability and improving access to phosphorus without the need to add fertilizers yes um but it's, you know research new research that's coming out at the moment is actually showing um that it very much depends on the the, the, the specific strain of crop that you're using whether it's oh. actually a mycorrhizal compatible strain or not it's okay yeah, yeah. So that's that's interesting because that's another question that occurred to me while yeah. I was reading this stuff, which is that you mentioned, or various people mentioned, mm. the possible use of mycorrhizae in agriculture, mm -hmm. essentially saying one of these days we're going to run out of cheap phosphorus, yeah, yeah, and we're going to be forced to to pay more attention to mycorrhizae. But what you're perhaps saying is that we've with crop breeding, we've maybe gone down. An avenue mm. of breeding crops that are kind of a bit badly behaved mm. as far as mycorrhizae are concerned and so that's not going to be good is it no no absolutely it makes things a lot more tricky i guess when you're trying yes. to bring mycorrhizae back into an agricultural setting yes. um certainly research ongoing looking at sort of going back to the heritage varieties of crops that were less adapted to these high nutrient regimes that we're sort of using today um, yeah. The high intensity application of fertilizers and pesticides, that's the other thing, right? In right. A lot of conventional agriculture use fungicides, yes. which obviously doesn't which is benefit. Obviously it's no obviously good at all. plants, yeah, it's no good for the mycorrhizae. So crop breeders may have to go back to sort of, to sort of yeah, basics yeah. and look at varieties that evolved think, under low yeah, nutrient I conditions. Think, I think there's a lot, of, a lot of work needs to be done to see which varieties, yeah. existing varieties, because you don't want to then have this trade-off between yield and you know, mycorrhizal compatibility yeah. because it's yeah we've got such a we're on the brink of a, of a food crisis right so yeah we need to sort of balance that really carefully yeah and also again um what what, what sort of mycorrhizas do you use to inoculate your arable fields 
Yes. I mean, there's so many different types and what, what, what is most compatible with the crop that you're growing. Yeah, and, yeah. because... Am I right in thinking that arable fields are not terribly mycorrhizal friendly anyway? No, because lots of fertilizer, lots of. I mean, being ploughed up every year. Yeah, I mean, mycorrhizers don't like that, do they? They don't tend to. They don't tend to do so well when they're broken up. No, No. (laughs) they don't like being chopped up into small pieces. They don't seem to be. No, No, but I think again with the the problem with applying the fungicides and the other types of pesticides, which interfere with the other microbial communities, we're only just starting to get to know the actual the complex interactions in the micro in the, in the rhizosphere okay. um, between plants fungi microbes invertebrates right. they all interact and yes. by constantly manipulating that environment in an agricultural setting yes. actually and not paying attention to it and not sort yeah. of replenishing it where you're destroying it is yeah. so you mentioned you mentioned yeah. you mentioned invertebrates there and, yeah. and so I noticed there are papers showing interactions between mycorrhizas and, and sort of herbivores and yes, aphids and things like yeah. that. And they seem really know, every, every, they seem really interesting, yeah. but everyone seems to show something Completely different. different so, yeah. <laughs> so is is that just confused? At yeah, the moment? my feeling is that it's pretty early days in that, <clears throat> that area of research, right. and the stuff that's coming out now is it's kind of groundbreaking, right? It's yeah. um, like we said, there seem to be contradictory studies, yeah. there's complementary studies. Um, the ones that I've highlighted in this virtual issue, though, are, were particularly interesting to me because we've got a positive impact and a almost negative impact right. of mycorrhization on um, invertebrate micro- um, plant interactions. So yes. um, the first one was the spider mite paper, yeah. which is really cool. So basically, the, the researchers found that by inoculating a plant with mycorrhizal fungi, the plant actually started producing volatiles that were more attractive to this predatory spider mite. And that predatory spider mite um, predated on aphids that were feeding on the plant. Right. So it actually made itself, it, it kind of flagged up the aphids as a yes. free meal to this spider mite and it attracted them. So that was obviously a positive impact on right. the plant. Um, but then the more recent paper, the Babikova et al. paper, um, they sort of, they, they found the opposite almost. <laughs> Yeah. They, they, they found a, an effect on the volatile compounds that were being released by the plant, yeah. but they actually increased the attractiveness of the plant to the aphids, and the aphids did better on the plant that had mycorrhizas than not, which would kind of make sense. Cause, I mean, it's got improved yeah. nutrition, so the sap's going to be more yeah. tasty and attractive to an aphid, maybe. Um, but yeah, again, it's, they're quite contradictory. Um, I think what's clear from the collection of papers, however, is that plant mycorrhizosymbiosis can have ecological impacts that are far wider than the symbiosis right. itself and it's yeah i think we yeah. need more studies looking at the wider impacts of mycorrhization on a multi-trophic level yeah okay than just focusing on what happens to the plant what happens to the fungus in isolation because it's clearly yeah. having yeah so just to finish off we we touched on agriculture a, a minute ago but can i just ask a, a, a sort of personal question because i'm because <laughs> i'm a i'm a gardener you know me too uh, you're a gardener, I'm of course. A bit you of a gardener, yeah, you're yeah. a bit of a gardener. I, am, yeah. you, I know you are. <laughs> and uh, mycorrhizas, you can buy mycorrhizas. Yeah. To, 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 you know, when you plant a tree or a mm-hmm. shrub, you tip a mycorrhizer in the yeah. hole, and it's a bit. Yeah. And I've always been a bit kind of iffy about those right? because I have a feeling that mycorrhizal spores are everywhere, really. Right. And if you plant something in most garden soils, they probably get infected by mycorrhizas quite quickly, anyway, mm-hmm. whether you add them or not. So right. am I am I right about that? Or yeah, I think it's it's. It really depends on the circumstances, yeah. I think. There's absolutely no point adding mycorrhizal inoculum if you're dealing with brachycaceous plants, for instance. No, they just they don't, don't do it. They don't, they don't, have don't them. do it, no. so why would you do that? Yes. Um, 
but there's many other plants as well that perhaps aren't as famous that won't take them up either. Yeah. Um, we're learning more and more about specificity in plant mycorrhizal relationships. Um, it seems that some plants, what works for some plants doesn't necessarily work for all plants. Right. Um, so it's difficult to be certain what the value really is in adding a general mycorrhizal inoculum to a mixed bed, for instance. Yeah. Um, the value might again be limited if you're planting mature specimens, because these are likely to be already playing host to one or more mycorrhizal fungi. So yes. why would you add more? Yeah. Um, if you're trying to establish seedlings, though, it might be of some benefit. Perhaps if you're germinating them in your compost on your windowsill like in, in sterile medium, some seedlings do okay. better, develop yeah. stronger root systems. Yeah. Um, so it might be worth giving it a try in that instance. Yeah. Um, but again, it's a species-specific thing, and there's no uniform response across all species for that. So again, if I think it's up to you. In, yeah, in the veg plot, it might be worth bearing in mind as well that many domesticated crop varieties, like we just mentioned, they've got yes. mycorrhizal capability bred out of them anyway. So, yes. again, the value might be limited. I'm being very negative about it, aren't I? <laughs> yes. But, you know, like but you I, said, yeah, there's no, spores I, everywhere. Yeah. And or if you whack in a load of foreign <clears> mycorrhizal <throat> fungi, you're not necessarily... Then they might not even take off. They might just... Yeah, okay. You know, they might not work. Um, so not, I, not my advice would be you might be just as well off avoiding yeah. the fungicides and sort of looking after your soil a bit and 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 gardening in a bit more mycorrhizal friendly more, sort of way. Yeah, yeah. Go easy on the fungicides. I go easy on the yeah, fertilizer I mean, and not too much digging. Basically, yeah. Um, no yeah. ploughing. No, stop, stop ploughing. <laughs> Put your tractor away. Yeah. Put your tractor away. <laughs> right. Well, that's brilliant. That's been that's that's been really. I've I've learned a lot. Oh, thank Thanks you. Very I've enjoyed much. it. Thank you. Okay. <laughs>